Awaken podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Good morning, Awaken. It's Mother's Day. So first things first. To all the moms out there who have brought life into the world, we salute you. We are grateful for you. If not for you, we wouldn't be here. (laughs) Um, But we also want to say that to all of those who long to be a mother, maybe whose tears are still wet on your face, uh, we see you. We know that you are present and we are with you. Uh, To all those whose relationship with their mom wasn't all that they deserved, my hope and prayer is that the Spirit of God would be near you and that she would wrap you up in her love and hold you close to her chest. Did you know that in the Bible, the Spirit of God, whenever it's talked about, is feminine? So God, we believe that everything feminine that is good and beautiful and true and worthy of celebration finds its home, is found first and fully in you. And so, Mother God, hold us. Hold us in this time of uncertainty, when so much is unknown. Would you even caress our foreheads and pull us close to your chest so that we can hear the heartbeat of that which sustains us. We want to begin this morning by inviting Mandy, our Kids Community Director, to lead us in a practice that's called imaginative prayer. We've done this before at Awaken. In the church tradition, it is attributed to St. Ignatius of Loyola and is often called cataphatic prayer. And Ignatius believes, and and I do as well, and Paul does, the Apostle Paul um, in 2 Corinthians, articulates this idea that we we believe and we experience something as true insofar as we can see it in our mind's eye, in our imagination. To the degree that we can present something in our mind, in our imagination, is, is the degree to which we experience it as true and the degree to which it can transform us. And so uh, we want to engage our imagination. We want our imagination to be a part of our spiritual lives. And so Miss Mandy is going to lead us and kids, she's going to lead you in an exercise. And we're going to invite you to hear this story. And I want you to try to imagine and see all the things that you are hearing. So, Miss Mandy. I'm going to read a prayer written by Jared Patrick Boyd from his book called Imaginative Prayer, a year-long guide for your children's spiritual formation. So close your eyes and let's take a few deep breaths together. God, I pray that you will release our imagination and help us to hear you speak to us during this time together. We open our hands to you. We open our ears to you. Come, Holy Spirit, imagine you have been invited to a very special meal. The king has invited you to dine with him. He is throwing a big feast, and you have received an invitation. You've never been to a feast before, and you've never met the king. How do you feel knowing that you are about to meet the king? Are you excited 
nervous, maybe a little scared. Enclosed in the invitation is a list of things you need to think about as you prepare for the feast. You've been asked to bring a dish to share with everyone. You've been asked to wear a special robe to the feast. That's right. All the people, boys and girls, men and women, will be wearing a robe to this feast. And finally, you've been asked to give a speech at the beginning of the meal. There's just one problem. You don't know how to cook. You only own a few items of clothing, none of which is a fancy robe for a fancy meal. And you have never prepared a speech before. Everything that is required of you to attend the feast are things you simply cannot do. How does this make you feel? You certainly don't want to miss the feast with the king, but you are unsure how you will make all the preparations to attend the feast. You go to sleep hoping you will figure out how to cook, what to wear, and how to give a speech at the beginning of the feast. The next morning, you hear a knock on the door. A man has come to visit you. He is very kind. You know his face and have seen him before. Imagine going on a walk with this kind man. Explain the feast to him and the robe and the speech and the dish you are supposed to bring to the feast. Imagine now that he is here to help you. You walk with the man to find fabric at the store. The man chooses a beautiful piece of white fabric. This is the fabric he has chosen for your robe. You watch as the man takes measurements of your arms and legs and around your waist. The robe is going to fit perfectly. You watch as the man begins to cut the fabric along the line he has drawn, and with thread and a needle, he begins to sew a robe for you. He slowly works on each stitch. All day and into the night, the man is sewing and hemming, and with each stitch, the robe begins to come together. You doze off while the man is still working. When you wake up, the robe is hanging on a hook, ready for you to try on. It fits perfectly. Imagine trying on the robe. Next, the man is in the kitchen, chopping vegetables and preparing a dish for you to take to the feast. There are pots and pans on the stove, and the smell of the food is wonderful. He hands you a bowl of stuff to stir, and you slowly stir the food that is in the bowl. You both are laughing and smiling and having fun preparing the food. You are working together, side by side, getting ready for the feast. You put the food in the oven to cook, and the man leaves. He tells you that he is going also to the feast. He has to leave now and help prepare some other things for the feast. You say goodbye. Imagine how thankful you would be if someone came and helped you prepare for a feast with the king, making you a custom-fit robe and teaching you how to cook a wonderful dish to share with others. Let your heart feel thankfulness right now as you imagine yourself all dressed up in a fancy robe with a pot of food in your hands. You are ready to go to the feast. Imagine now that you walk into the place where the feast is held and place your dish of food on the table. There are others there, and they too are dressed in white robes. Everyone is sitting around a giant table dressed in white robes, 
laughing and talking and sharing stories before the meal begins. There's a chair at the head of the table. That chair is for the king. Just now you remember that there was something else you were supposed to prepare for the feast. Your speech. You forgot about the speech and you were supposed to give the speech before the meal. Imagine that someone makes an announcement. We will now hear a speech to be given before the meal begins. And then a man stands up and begins to speak. It is the same man who made your robe and prepared the dish you brought for others to share. He gives a beautiful speech before the meal, and then he takes his seat at the head of the table. This is the king. The man who sewed your robe is the king. The man who helped you prepare your food is the king. The man who gave your speech is the king, and his name is Jesus. Everything you were supposed to do for the feast, he did with you and for you. In this prayer, Jesus is by our side, helping us do what we cannot do in our, on our own. To imagine him in a human body is much easier than opening our eyes and not actually getting to see him, not actually have him cook your favorite dinner. But the Spirit of God is always by our side, even when we cannot see. The simple pieces of your day are being sewn together to maybe create beauty or forgiveness or patience. Maybe he's helping you show love or helping you experience love. What if you end each day before you go to sleep by asking yourself, how did Jesus help me today? Where and how did the Spirit of God show up? You'll be surprised by the different ways that you maybe didn't realize He was by your side all along.
Okay, friends, before we get into the teaching, a couple of public service announcements, the first of which is the annual meeting, which is next weekend. Hard to believe, May 17th is next weekend, but it is, and so we're going to have an annual meeting. We will not be having this live, but rather we will be doing this by a Zoom webinar. So uh, in your inbox, if you are subscribed to the Awaken Weekly, or if you're not, you can find this on the front page of the website, there will be a link to register for the annual meeting. Uh, this link will take you to a registration page. If you choose to uh, register, you will be sent an email that has a password that you will use when the, uh, the annual meeting begins, which is 6 p.m. on Sunday night, the 17th. Uh, a reminder, this is open to anybody who calls Awaken Home. Uh, you're invited to participate in this meeting. Uh, sh usually it's about an hour, hour and a half, and um, you'll hear from our staff, and you'll hear from uh, Danny, who is our finance chair, from me as your lead pastor, and Eva as our chair. Uh, we will vote on the budget, and we will also vote on the nominations for the advisory team for this next year. And so uh, anyone's invited to participate in the meeting, but only partners can vote on the nominations for the advisory team and on the budget. So um, please join us for that. Look for that link in your inbox or on the website. And last, I'll just say this. At a uh, recent staff meeting, we were discussing, we were sharing with one another like what it's like to do this work of pastoring and leading in the midst of this uh, reality that we find ourselves in uh, with COVID-19. And one of the things that was true across the board was how difficult it is, uh, how hard it is to not have feedback. Like in person, when you're all here, there's instant feedback. Like if something goes well or if it doesn't go well, uh, or if you should keep investing energy into something or you should direct it somewhere else, uh, you know that in person. But when that's taken away, 
I, I gotta be honest, it's really hard to know like if something is working or having an impact. Um, and, and you all know this as a church, but like the staff at Awaken is second to none. Like these folks are amazing, they're incredible. They, they, this group of people loves you all and they, to a person, they feel honored and humbled that they get to serve at Awaken. And so if you get a chance um, and you've got a spare moment, either by text or by email or phone call or a note or something, and if it doesn't feel like a burden, would you just let people know, like the, the staff at Awaken, if, if you're connected to them or they're serving in an area that, that um, you're a part of, would you let them know if something's giving life or uh, if, if something is working or you're appreciate it, appreciative of it? Or honestly, even if, if, if something isn't working or you, uh, if you wished something was happening that isn't happening or if something that you're hoping for isn't present, um, would you share that with us and let us know? I can't promise you that the answer will be yes and we'll get to it right away, but at least then we're not wandering around in the dark like trying to find the light switch um, and we're not guessing at whether or not something is helpful or life-giving or not. So bottom line, like we love um, leading and pastoring and serving you at Awaken and we're grateful um, for you and want to support you all and love you well as your pastors and leaders. And so um, I don't think it's, any, it's, it's a surprise to anyone that in a space that we've never been in before, it doesn't come as naturally or as easily to us. Uh, so feel free to engage or offer feedback. That would be super helpful to our staff uh, if it's not a burden. So uh, with that, let's turn to Acts chapter 7. We are looking at the implications in the book of Acts. And uh, this is week four of a series that we're in where we're asking, what does it mean that Jesus was crucified, that he was resurrected, that he's ascended? And what are the implications of these realities? Like what conclusions can we draw from this event that maybe aren't explicitly stated, but that we see the acts or the apostles in the book of Acts working out? And then how do we apply that here and now in 2020? So this morning we're in Acts chapter seven. We're gonna start in verse 54, and this is the stoning of Stephen so if you're able, I'd invite you to stand wherever you are. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when, when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. This story sounds eerily similar to Jesus' death and crucifixion, but... Um, there it is, friends, the stoning of Stephen. Pray with me, if you will. God, this morning, as we look into this uh, story and the background of it, I pray that you would speak, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would be present to us as your church, gathered wherever we are, that you would uh, give encouragement and life and hope and um, more love and mercy and compassion to be poured out of us into the world wherever it is needed, I pray. In the strong name of Christ and the people said together, amen and amen. You can have a seat. Uh, so remember, Luke is our writer in the book of Acts. He's continuing the story that he started in the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel, of course, is about the life and teachings, the death and resurrection of Jesus, who is the Christ. 
Uh, Acts is the continuation of that story. So that story continues by the appearing of Jesus to the first apostles and to the disciples, by the ascension of Jesus to his sort of pre-Philippians 2 seat at the right hand of God. Uh, it continues by the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. And, 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 and it tells the story of a major shift or the completion of a major shift in the story of God's people. Uh, that shift being that the, the people is no longer defined by temple and Torah and promised land and ethnic identity as Israel. Hold on to those four things. But rather by Jesus the Christ, who is the living Torah. By the people who have been born anew and be, who have become the, whole, uh, the temple of the Holy Spirit because it's taken up residence in them. Those people no longer being defined by the ethnic identity, which circumcision is the symbol of, but rather by participation in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, of which baptism is the symbol of. And so this is, these are the things Acts is exploring, the implications of this shift. So Stephen is the first martyr in the Christian tradition. So the first Christian to lose their life on behalf of Jesus, the one he follows. Uh, so much I wanna get into and, and talk about in this passage, but let's begin by asking this question. Why is Stephen being stoned by the religious leaders of Israel? So you have a group of people, powerful people, who lead the institution, the religious institution, known as the temple or Israel, and these people are, they're, they're hacked, they are mad, they are, they are revved up, so much so that they stoned this man, and a one Saul is standing by watching what's happening. Like, why is he being killed? Well, Stephen has been accused of something by the religious leaders in power. And to understand what he's been accused of, you have to go back to chapter 6. Remember, the Spirit is given at Pentecost in chapter 2. Thousands of people in and around Jerusalem, they're, they're coming to a firm faith in this Jesus as the Son of God. Because of his resurrection and then appearances and then his ascension, they're, they're, they're coming in droves, thousands it says. Uh, and this new movement is growing. People are giving up their possessions to join in this movement. And it's this first moment of what Jesus has inaugurated by his resurrection. This new kingdom of God. This new, maybe choose a different word than kingdom. This new like way of being human in the world. Um, and the first leaders of this movement begin to set up systems to meet the growing needs. So thousands of people are coming. They're, giving up, they're, they're affirming faith in Christ. They're following this Jesus. And they're giving their possessions to this new thing, this new movement, this new church, as it were. They're feeding the poor. They're caring for the sick. And they begin to divide up the work and entrust it to faithful men and women in smaller numbers. So we've got to scale this thing, right? We're talking supply chain management here. We've got to scale this movement. And so that's what they do. And Stephen is one of those people. He's one of those people that the apostles have deemed faithful so much so that they've given him some authority. Now, Stephen is full of the Spirit, as Acts 6 says, and he's doing the work of spreading the news about Jesus the Messiah, his resurrection, and this new movement of God, and it's spreading out. And here's the key. He's saying and he's testifying to the fact that this new movement is spreading out beyond the boundaries, beyond the previous structures, and even institutions, and boundaries that those institutions have installed. That this new movement of Jesus is creeping out past those lines and those boundaries. And Stephen stirs up a hornet's nest. They are mad. So let's pick it up in chapter 6, verse 8, where it says this. 
And now Stephen, a man full of grace, of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue, of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene, Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. This includes Saul, who becomes Paul. But they could not stand up against Stephen, or they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Not cool. Not cool at all. So they stirred up the people and elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. This is the ruling religious elite. They produced false witnesses who testified. Again, this is like, it's a a kangaroo court, a lot like Jesus' trial. Uh, They testified, these false witnesses, this fellow never stops speaking against the holy place and against the law. Hold on to those two. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Sacred cow. Not cool. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and then they saw his face was like the face of an angel. Now, friends, I don't know if you know this or not, but there are some predictable accusations of me as a pastor, as a leader, as a Christian, you know, preacher, teacher guy, and of Awaken by certain circles of the Christian realm, let's call it. Um, Again, I don't know if you know this or not, but if you happen upon certain groups of Christians who maybe consider themselves like hardcore evangelicals or tend to be a little more fundamentalist in their leaning, who inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible are very, very important. They, they often declare themselves as literists, literalists, like if the Bible says it, I believe it, that's enough. Um, if you run into those kinds of people or are at a party and those sorts of folks are there and the topic of Awaken comes up, there are a couple of very predictable accusations that will follow. I've heard them many, many times. One of them, that I don't believe that the Bible is authoritative. Um, The second of which is that I'm really soft on sin, that I don't talk about sin or the effects of sin or the consequences of sin and how you all are sinners in in need of God's grace, Um, that you're worms and you can do nothing good. Uh, and And then there's one other one that I've heard that I don't take the holiness or the wrath of God seriously enough. Now, I'd like to take issue with a few of those. Um, In particular, the first one, that I don't believe the Bible is authoritative. Absolutely, I believe the Bible is authoritative. Now, here's the problem. I may uh, interpret the Bible differently than someone else and then apply that interpretation. Because why? Because it's authoritative in my life. But because I don't agree with your interpretation of the Bible doesn't mean that I don't think the Bible's authoritative. Friends, I'm defending myself. I don't even need to. There's nobody even in this room. Come on. But here's here. Why do I bring this up? Okay, there... Among the Jewish religious institution of Jesus' day, there are a few predictable accusations that people would make of Jesus and his followers because this new movement of Jesus is challenging some of the assumptions upon which these institutions or this institution is built. And so because of that, there are a few predictable accusations that are often made. Uh, I mentioned the, the four of them earlier. They are... Uh, the four sort of symbols of Judaism in Jesus' day, the first of which is the temple. The temple is the center of worship for God's people. It was and is the temple in Jerusalem. That's the center of God's worship, or center of worship for God's people. The second of which is Torah, that the law of Moses handed down over generations and the fulfillment of that law was and is the goal of the religious Jew. So your holiness 
and your position before God was determined by the law. So it was a big deal. Temple, Torah, and then the promised land. The land that was granted by God to the people. And even to this day, there is a strong commitment to the land as part of the experience of the religious Jew. These are called Zionists in our day. And then lastly, you had temple, Torah, land, and ethnicity or ethnic identity. So participation in the life of Israel as an ethnic identity was through the patriarch and determined by the symbol of circumcision. So if you challenge any of these assumptions or these symbols in Jesus' day, you're bound to get yourself in trouble. Or in this case, if you're perceived to be challenging these assumptions, you're, you're bound to get yourself in trouble or even killed. Acts 6 tells us that Stephen has been accused of stirring up trouble by speaking against two of these four things. This place, they say, which is the temple, and against the law. That Stephen is speaking against this place, the temple, which you all stand for, right, as the Sanhedrin in this ruling court, and the law, which is Torah. And so these people who hold religious and institutional power are having none of it. And so they ring them up on charges of being anti-temple and anti-Torah. Now here's the fascinating part about chapter 7. It's the longest narrative in the book of Acts by a single voice. And it is Stephen's defense, or you could argue Stephen's non-defense of these charges that he's being rung up on. I love this. He doesn't even ever address the charges that he's being rung up on, anti-temple, anti-Torah. He takes a whole chapter and he never even addresses it. It's as if he doesn't, he's not interested in playing their game, like Jesus was in his trial. Like he's asked specific questions, but he never answers them. Like he's not willing to submit to or put himself under this quasi or kangaroo court authority, N nor is Stephen. No, instead of playing their game and trying to convince them that he's not anti-temple or not anti-Torah, which arguably he's not, he launches into a history of Israel starting all the way back in the beginning with Father Abraham, which is why I love this guy. It would be like, okay, get this, right? Stephen's been rung up on these charges. He's anti-Torah. He's anti-temple. They're expecting him to tell them why he's not either of those two things. But instead, he goes into a, a diatribe, a long lecture about the history of Israel to the people who represent Israel and its history. It would be like someone walking up to the President of the United States of America and laying down some serious history and fact about the founding of our country and the Constitution and the democracy and what it means to be American. Because in fact, this guy who represents all these things has no idea what the, you know what I wanna say, you, what the heck he's talking about or what he's doing. It would be as if someone needed to do that. <laughs> Not that anybody does, but it would be as if somebody, that's kind of what it would be like. So Stephen, he starts from the beginning, right? He puts himself in the story with these people he's talking to. He's like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, Egypt, captivity, slavery, oppression, Moses, who's born in Egypt, but then flees Egypt and then finds God at the burning bush and then is called back to Egypt. The Exodus story, the Red Sea, and then this little hint about where he's headed with this rant with Deuteronomy 18. He says, this is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. 
It's coming, better hang on. Then he picks it back up and he starts to sort of crank up the heat. He says, our ancestors who refused to obey him, Moses, and wanted to return back to Egypt, the golden calf, the wandering in the wilderness, the tabernacle, Joshua, the promised land, David, Solomon, and the house that Solomon built, which, is, which houses the glory of the presence of the living God. This takes 47 verses of chapter seven to do. <laughs> then Stephen Again, he's lecturing the religious institutional leaders about the history of the institution they represent and hold power in. And then in verse 48, we sort of begin to see what Stephen's about to do. He sort of like tips his hand a little bit, right? When he quotes the prophet and he says, however, the most high does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will be my resting place? Has not my hand made all of these things? What has he said? What has he just done in verse 48? Friends, I would like to suggest that the religious leaders in the institution that they have built have in effect taken God hostage. What do I mean by that? They have charged Stephen with being against the temple and against the law because Stephen is asserting that God has moved out beyond their temple and beyond their law and, as, and is at work beyond the boundaries that they are so vigilantly defending. It's as if they have a giant fence that they have to patrol the edges of. This is why he quotes the prophet for whom uh, he, he, the prophet is speaking on behalf of God who says basically like, who do you think I am? Do you actually think that you can build a house big enough to house my glory? Do you think you can contain my presence and determine my resting place? Did I not write these rules that you are now demanding I play by and be confined by? It's a little bit like the rant in the book of Job when God says to Job, like, where were you when I put the stars in the sky? Where were you when I carved the mountains with the rivers? Where were you when I thought of the stork and other things? Like, who do you think you are telling me how things should or should not go? In essence, the religious institutional leaders of Israel have taken God hostage. They've confined God to the structure of the temple and the words of Torah. And Stephen is about to lay some smack down on these clowns in verse 50. He says, you, now he, he distances himself. For the first 48 verses, he's, he's put himself in, in the camp. Like, we, our ancestors. And then he turns the, and points a finger and he says, you, you stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like our, your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed the one who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah. And now you have betrayed and murdered that one, the righteous one. You have received the law that was given through the angels, but you have not obeyed it. Woo, man, getting hot in here. Verses 1 to 47, Stephen is with them. He builds trust. He builds common ground. Verse 48 is the turn where he begins to challenge their assumptions about who controls the divine and where God can be or can't be, who determines where and when and how far God can move. And then in verses 49 to 53, Stephen indicts them. The, the temple, he indicts them, the system, the temple, the institution itself for not only missing, but now standing in the way of and outright opposing the movement of God. This is what gets Stephen killed. He speaks truth to people in power. Truth that implicates their complicity in the death of the Messiah. And they kill him because of it.
Now, in the time remaining, a few questions. I want to explore the nature of power for a moment, and then I want to ask you to consider two very important questions. So first, power. What happens when truth is spoken to people and institutions of power? Maybe said differently, like, what's the relationship of truth to power? And in particular, certain kinds of power. Like, power that's not governed by the values and the energy of what Jesus calls the kingdom of God. Like, power that's not consistent with the heart and the essence of the divine. Like, this is the question in this, or this question and this situation in Acts chapter 7. It's not a new one by any stretch of the imagination. This has been happening forever. This is what gets Stephen killed. It's what gets Jesus, it's what gets Jesus killed. It's what gets Dr. King killed. Mandela put in prison. Truth to power. Particular kinds of power. And if you look back over history and over time, I want to suggest there are some very predictable patterns and responses to those who hold power in a way that's not consistent with the kingdom. When truth is spoken to it. This kind of power, when truth is spoken to it, this kind of power that's not consistent with the divine heart and the energy and the flow of Jesus, the life of the Christ, it predictably always seeks to preserve and eliminate. It does whatever it takes by any means necessary to preserve its position of power. Because for them, those who hold this kind of power and wield it in this way, it's a zero-sum game. Which means that if they win, you lose. Or if you win, they lose. Kill or be killed, right? Like there's only one king of the mountain. And if it's not them, it's me. It's us. And if it's not us, it's them. And so we seek to preserve whatever position of power we have when we wield it in this way. There can't be two winners of the Hunger Games. Like, come on, Katniss and Peta, you know better than that. Oh, but what have they just done? They've spoken truth to power. That we're not going to play this game where you're entertained by death. So power that's inconsistent with God's kingdom, it always seeks to preserve itself at all costs. It will even sacrifice its own children at times. Children that grew up in its system and in its culture. When those children speak truth to it, it will often, and it often does, and is willing to sacrifice even its own because it seeks to preserve itself. And then also it does this by eliminating the opposition. So if you think about God and who God is and what God is like, God is generative. God brings life. God gives life. God preserves life. God brings things into being. The opposite of that energy is to eliminate. Like if you oppose me or what I have secured, I seek to eliminate you. I seek to consume you so there's nothing left of you and only I remain. You are a threat to me and my existence and so long as you are present and remain, my place is threatened and so I eliminate you. See, all of the energy is to quiet and suppress the voices of dissent and anything that threatens the institution and the powers or the positions of power that are held. So power that's not submitted to the way of Jesus and not consistent with the heart of God, it predictably acts the same way throughout history and time. It seeks to preserve itself, and it seeks to eliminate the, the voices or the people of opposition.
Now, it's easy to critique systems, right? Things that are ubiquitous, ambiguous, impersonal, faceless, nameless. We can sit here and say, yeah, those kinds of institutions, they suck. They're, they're, they're not with Jesus and they don't do things by the kingdom. But what do you do when the prophet speaks a word of truth and challenges your power? The first of two questions I'd like you to consider. Stephen gets killed because he calls particular people stiff-necked and hard-hearted. His critique and his truth is not to faceless and nameless institutions. It's personal. And so my question to you is personal. What do you do when a word of truth is spoken in such a way to you? When a word of truth is spoken in such a way that it challenges a position of power that you hold. Where to receive it would be to diminish your power or your position or your authority. Where to receive it would maybe be to admit that you are wrong. What do you do when truth is spoken in such a way that it challenges a confirmed belief that you have and that you hold that gives you comfort or elevates your position? When it challenges how you see the world or your neighbor or even your enemy? How do you keep from becoming hard-hearted and stiff-necked? How do we remain open and humble to the moving of God's spirit? How do we remain open to the possibility that we might be wrong? That while I hold this belief and I have this conviction that I could be wrong, that I might not see everything there is to see, that there may be information that I have not yet come across that would change my mind or my position and I might have to submit to or give away some power or authority that I have. I guess I want to ask, what kinds of people are we becoming? It's fascinating to me. I don't know if you guys are like on social media or watch the news much. I've gotten a bit fatigued, to be perfectly honest. But man, this, the world we live in right now is ripe for debate and argument and for conspiracy theories. Like the things that I have read and I, like, I get sent to me, I'm like, oh my lands. Like, what kinds of people are we becoming? Like, what does it take to become the kind of person that is soft and open and humble? Not weak, but the kind of strength that Jesus wields, the kind of power that Jesus wields. What kind of practices are necessary to foster that kind of life? Like, what do you do when the prophet speaks a word of truth? What's your posture? Are you open to a new and fresh word from the spirit of the living, living, moving, active God? Not the one that you can freeze and put in a temple made by hands, but one that is loose, roaming about the world, doing good. And my last question is, what are you willing to die for? which I think is a strangely appropriate question today. Maybe it's a little too close or a little too soon. I don't know. But I think it's, it's in the text and I think it fits. What are you willing to die for? Like, is there anything outside of the preservation of yourself that you would be willing to give up your life for? Like, we keep, we keep talking about, if you've watched any of the commercials, they're all about 
COVID-19 and the heroes, right? The front lines people who are out there. And we love a hero. We love that story. The story of someone who's willing to sacrifice that would give up the very thing that's most precious to us, which is life. We're inspired by this moment. We're inspired by this movement. But what are you willing to die for? Like, is there a compass, a north star that guides your life? Something that is so important and so valuable that you would, you would actually be willing to give up everything for it. On a side note, I would say that history and neuroscience would argue that if that thing that you're willing to die for isn't outside of yourself, you will live a far less fulfilling life. Neurologically, we know this is true. If the thing that is the most important to us is not something greater than or outside of ourselves, our lives will be far less fulfilling than for those whom that thing is outside of themselves and is beyond themselves. So take that for what it's worth. But Stephen, in the story of Acts, and many Christians since then, and I today are offering you the possibility that this way of Jesus, his life and his teachings, his way of being human in the world is worth everything, even if it costs your life. So what do you do when the prophet speaks a word of truth? How do you respond? What kind of posture are you immediately defending yourself? Does anger rise up in you? You don't know me. You can't say that to me. And then what are you willing to die for? What's so important to you that you would be willing to give up the thing that is the most precious to you, life itself? Is there anything? A question for us to ponder this morning. Thanks to Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church. Pray with me. God, as we move to a time of silence and we consider, what do we do when the prophet speaks a word of truth? And is there anything beyond ourselves that we would be willing to give up the thing that's the most important to us for? Holy Spirit, we trust that you're good, that you are light, that you are love, and that when we submit ourselves to you and your guidance, that you lead us to good things. So, Holy Spirit, we do that now. Speak to us, I pray. Before we move to communion, we want to close with this song. Uh, Mel's been working on this this last week, and um, it's kind of a prayer that is a response to these questions. Uh, and the verses say, help me to listen, 
Help me to notice. Help me to feel it. Help me believe that I am safe here, that I can stay here, that I belong here. Help me believe. And the chorus is this, you, you are unshaken by all the chaos and that I can trust this, that you are with me. So you, you are unveiling all that oppresses us and we can trust that we will be free. So let this song um, kind of be sung over you and our prayer for us as a community and for you as you listen, that we would become these kinds of people who risk being vulnerable with the divine and with each other, who remain soft and humble to the moving and the acting and the speaking of the living God among us, and that we would be willing to lay down even our lives uh, to follow this Jesus if that's what's asked. So receive this song. Help me to listen.
as we make our way towards the table, uh, invite you to find the elements that are needed, bread and wine or juice, and hear these words. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he blessed it. He said, this, this is my blood shed for you. Whenever you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. And so church, this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith or you who have little, you who have been here often or not have been here for a long time or ever before, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed. These, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. So come, not because the church invites you, but because Christ invites you to be known and to be fed here at the table. As you take the bread, receive these words the body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat, my friend. And as you take the cup, hear these words, the blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink, my friend. So as you go back into the lives that you lead, my hope and my prayer is that this story of Stephen, the first who gave up his life to follow this Jesus, would be an inspiration to you. That there are moments when we are asked to speak what is true to power when it is wielded in a way that's not consistent with the, the call and the life of the Christ whether that be in our schools or in our government or in our law enforcement or in our neighborhoods or even in our families, that when power is held and wielded in such a way that it is incongruent with the heart and the nature of the divine, that the prophet stands up and speaks truth. And that sometimes that truth is spoken to us so be reminded that it, it cuts both ways. It always has, and, and it will remain to do so. And so are we becoming the kinds of people who are open and kind and gentle and humble, who would go all the way, if asked, to follow this Jesus? It's my prayer, my hope for you. Know that the Lord blesses you and keeps you. The Lord's lifting up his face to you and is gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and the church gathered together wherever they are said, amen. Grace and peace, my friends. www.facebook.com backslash awakening community or on Twitter, the awakening community. See you next time.